Well, uh, we want you to get involved in what all is happening here at Crossbridge, so make sure you do that. Um, all those things are going to be exciting. Those couple of weeks, we're going to have new service times, back to school bash, don't miss it. If you had it, didn't have a chance when you came in today through the building, or if you're online and you didn't get the notes, there's, uh, you can scan the QR code. It should be on the screen right behind. It is. There it is on the screen. We want you to do that. Uh, there are some notes that you could take today. If you're not a note person, that's okay. Um, we, we hope that you might, you know, try it. Uh, today, we're going to dive into something new, and so maybe you'll want to write some of it down. Um, we're going to shift gears. Over the last two months, we have been looking in the Old Testament, um, and we've been looking into the lives of some of the uh, kind of good kings of Judah. And, and good kings, maybe by the standards of humans, they were. But we actually saw a lot of flaws in their reigns, a lot of things that we were able to kind of learn from and grow from in our own lives. Uh, and so we're going to shift gears today. We have a new two-part series that we're calling Out of the Cave. And I, I want to be honest with you, this is probably the most vulnerable I've ever been in writing a sermon. This will be maybe the most vulnerable I've ever been on stage before. Um, and so this is an, in, it's an interesting thing. I, I don't tend to let people in uh, to my life at this sort of like depth. And so if you'll... I'm doing that for a couple of reasons. One, it's probably time to do that. And, and two, I'm hoping that it will, that it will bring you hope. Uh, bring you hope. We're, we're going to talk about what it looks like to um, be in, in the cave of depression. In the cave where, where it feels like everything's kind of closing in. And, and, and when you're in that cave, it's sort of disorienting and it's, it's dark. You don't know where you are. And so we're going to talk about what it looks like to get into a cave of depression and some of the things that maybe are, are warning signs about it. And so let me just start by saying that I never would have assumed or, or thought that I struggled with depression. Because I know that depression is real and I know anxiety is real and people who struggle with it are going through real things. And I never wanted to belittle what people who felt those things were going through. I never wanted to make it seem as if I understood. Uh, I, I didn't want, uh, you know, sympathy and empathy are two different things. And, and I didn't want to assume that I knew how they were feeling. And so I never really thought that depression was something that I struggled with. Because I didn't understand that it was more than, it was more than what was happening inside of the mind. Now, there are absolutely biological, chemical things that cause depression, but what we're going to look at today is that there are also, and, and actually pretty agreed upon in the scientific community, behavioral and psychosocial things that go into leading to depression. And I didn't know that. I didn't realize that that was there. I didn't listen to the things that my body was telling me. So I would say, well, it's not that big of a deal. There are people who have it worse. You ever said that to yourself? Like, it's the, there are starving children in Africa. And that's true. It's absolutely true. There are people who do have things worse. And, and so I would belittle the things that I was feeling and I would push them aside and say, but it's not that big of a deal. And I would ignore what my body was saying. I, and it wasn't really until this past year that I think it all sort of came to a head for me. And you and I, we had a pretty rough 2020, to, to say the least. Many of us know people who, who lost jobs, careers. We know a lot of people who have lost loved ones. We've lost loved ones and friends and people who are still dealing with it today. We had hoped that it would be gone by now and it's, and it's just not. It's like 2020 is just lingering and over the past year, I, I was going through things, but not understanding, not understanding exactly what was happening. I just sort of felt off, not, not like myself. I, I felt different. I felt odd. And it was, a, it was a year that I should have been excited and happy and feel, feeling fulfilled. And it kind of illuminate a little bit where um, I had this conversation uh, maybe four, four or five months ago now. Um, Fallon, who is our assistant director in our learning center, she's got three incredible kids. We love their family so much. Um, her middle child's name is Madison, and I know we're not supposed to play favorites, but she's, she's just one of my favorites. Um, she's just 
she's like spunky. She's got, she's just got that attitude that, you know, you want to, you just want to be like, have fun when she's around. And um, so Madison found out that I was married. She didn't know that. I guess I don't talk about it enough with the kids when we're in a kid's church. Uh, but her older sister pointed out to my son, Graham, to Madison, hey, that's Pastor Joey's son. And she said, he's got kids? Um, and Isabel said, well, yeah, he's, he's married. He's married? She said. Um, and Fallon said, well, yeah, he's married. She said, but he just always looks so happy. So... I don't know if that's a, like, testament to uh, marriages or what, but she was just confused because I always looked so happy. How could I possibly be married? Now, the truth is that uh, I, I, you know, I feel like I am pretty happy. Um, in fact, uh, it was like five, five or six years ago now that um, when I was— um, on my way to being ordained, you have to go to like a weekend away and you take all these personality tests and you go through these like, it's like the trials to get ordained. And Bethany and I had to go and we had to take like marriage, like person, I don't know, marriage assessments. And the only thing that the guy who was giving our assessment could say is that we, were, we seemed excessively happy together. And he said it like it was a bad thing. Uh, he just said, like, people don't score like this typically. And so just so everybody knows, I am very happy in my marriage. Uh, I love my wife. But there are times where I maybe, maybe what Madison was saying kind of feels that way, is that I, we, we do just, like, look happy sometimes. And we, we kind of mask what's happening with sort of things that are happening on the outside. And we smile and we kind of force that. And we, we, we put up a wall so that people don't, so people don't know. The truth is, is the last, the last year and a half, I, I haven't been super happy all the time. Just many times I just haven't been feeling it. Whatever it is, I didn't have it. And, and I, was, I was trying to, I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And depression never once entered into my mind as something that could be happening to me. I never, I never thought that way. I didn't, I didn't think that until this past spring. And in March, our team, our, our staff had a chance to go to the Gather Conference in Palm Beach Gardens at Christ Fellowship Church. And it was a one-day event just aimed at helping to bring pastors together and, and encourage and to, and to sort of strengthen and kind of get back on track after a year of sort of like all these changes. And Pastor Chris Hodges was one of the main speakers. And, and he brought this message to us about a, the kind of coming from a book that he had written called Out of the Cave. And when he talked, it was like just a sack of bricks fell out of the sky onto me and illuminated the things that I was feeling in my life and connected dots for me. That night I, I got home and I, I told Bethany everything I was feeling. I, I didn't have the words before. I didn't know what it was. And um, then the next day as a team, we, we sat around a table and we tried to, whenever we go away somewhere, we try to um, sit around and say, hey, what's the top two or three things that you're going to take away and you're going to do something about? And I, for the first time, I was pretty open with our team here that I, I was feeling this way. And what Pastor Chris had said at the conference really like illuminated it and brought it to light. And, and now I see the things that are happening in my life in a different way. And as we went around the table, that seemed to be something that a lot of people were feeling and seeing it differently. And as we sat there, we realized maybe, maybe this is something that we need to bring to you. And what we realized is that if we're dealing with this, then I'm sure that this is a bigger, a bigger thing. And so we pray, prayed about it and we thought, you know what, this is, this is the right thing. We need to talk about this. We need to talk about it. And so um, this is just like disclaimer that a lot of the research from today's message and next week's message comes from this book called Out of the Cave. And I promise like it's the Bible too. Like we're going to read lots of scripture today. Uh, but if you want, we've got these in the resource center. Um, we're not making any money on them. We just want you to have something that you could use as a tool to help you. It's called Out of the Cave by Chris Hodges. Um, 
And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what it looks like, what, what happens to put us in a cave of depression. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about this week. And you might think, well, that's not very hopeful, hope-filled. Um, but I promise there's a lot of hope in what we're going to look at. Uh, the fact is, is that you and I actually have a lot to do with whether or not we fall into bouts of depression. And then next week, Pastor Brad is going to come and we're going to talk about what it looks like to get out of the cave. What are steps that we can take um, through Scripture to get ourselves out of the cave? And now don't, don't hear me, don't hear me that I think that depression is all behavior-based, that, that you should just buck up because this isn't that sermon series, all right? Depression's real. And, and then there are some of us who are on medications for that, and that's good. You need to be. If your doctor has prescribed that for you, please, please don't hear us that we think that medicines are bad and that depression is just all, you know, you can just feel better. Um, but we also think that if we, allow, if we allow biology to be the only cause for depression, we're going to miss some real solutions that we can, that we can see. And so, we're going to dive in to this two-part series. Uh, I would, I'd like to pray, and then we're going to kind of just start going a million miles an hour, okay? Because I started writing this sermon last week, and when I practiced it the first time, it was 65 minutes. The second time I practiced it, it was only 35, so I cut half of it out. But we gotta, we're going to start blazing a trail, so let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for you. We're thankful for all that you've done for us. We pray that the, the words that are spoken over the next few minutes, that they would be your words, not mine. Uh, that when we read your scripture, that it would penetrate our hearts, that it would change us. And God, that you would make us more like you today. Pray these things in your name. Amen. So I think one of the places that we need to start is to recognize that depression, anxiety, these things that are happening within our minds, that they're, that they're real, okay? Uh, this isn't something that people just make up to get attention. These are real things. In fact, and nothing has increased it more than last year. Check out some of these numbers. Calls to mental health hotlines last year went up 900%. In a year where we thought that maybe we could like spend more time with our families because we weren't allowed to do anything, that we would like become closer as families, divorce filings actually went up 26% last year. And this might be one of the most troubling numbers. It's a 25%, that's a quarter, that's one out of every four young adults contemplated suicide in America last year. 25% of young adults contemplated suicide. And then one out of every 10 Americans contemplated it. 10% of all Americans contemplated suicide. Depression is real. Did you know that the one out of every nine people currently are taking antidepressant medicines, which again is not a bad thing, but one out of every nine, it's more prevalent than maybe we realize. And one out of every five has actually done it at some point. So this isn't just something that happens to other people. The use of antidepressants in 2020 went up by 300% and continues to increase. And all of this has led experts to believe that depression is the number one health crisis in the world. And that if we don't do something about it, it is going to tear us apart. If we allow biology to be the only reason we're going to miss some solutions. So, so that's why we're going to say this is, and it's in your notes, is depression is not a malfunction of the mind, but it's a signal. It's a signal trying to tell us something. Depression is trying to tell us, it's our body reacting. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not weak. You're not crazy. You're a human being with unmet needs in other parts of your life. You see, I felt like this. I, I felt crazy. I, I, I didn't understand what was happening Everything on the outside suggests that I should be just giddy about life. I have an incredible life. Like, I have a wonderful job. I love working here. It is so much fun. I have an amazing wife who has stuck with me through some hard times and some great times. We have two just out-of-this-world kids. And last year when Riley Ann was born in October, I had every reason to just be excited and happy and joy-filled, and yet something was missing. I, I just didn't understand what was happening within me. Like, why am I like—these are the questions I asked. Why am I like this? Why can't I just be happy? 
I would, I would, why is my faith like so small? Like, why can't my faith carry me through this? And when I sat through this teaching from Chris Hodges, I realized that a lot of it had to do with the fact that I, I just wasn't taking care of myself. This, this anxiety, this dark cloud that had hovered over me was a signal telling me that things were not where they needed to be in my life. Things were not where they needed to be. It was my body saying, you need to fix this. And I think one of the reasons we don't talk about this is there is such a stigma attached to depression and mental illness and, and anxiety that, that, that we don't want to talk about it because we, we don't want people to think we have it because there's a stigma. And look no further than this past week at the Olympics. Simone Biles, who is the, the greatest gymnast in the world, perhaps the greatest of all time, has like multiple stunts named after her that only she can do. Like she's the only person in the world that can do these things. She withdraws from the team competition and eventually from her individual competitions because she, she recognized that something in her mind was off, causing her to not be able to operate at full capacity at full function. And she realized that, that this signal was saying something to her and that if she ignored it, she could get, she could get physically hurt. And she, she was trying her best to listen to what was happening within her. But that didn't stop people. It didn't stop people. I've read countless, countless just, you know, Facebook posts and Twitter, Twitter posts and on Instagram of people just belittling her situation and saying that she just needs to power through it as if she owes me sitting on the couch eating Cheetos something that she should just, you know, cheer up. She's, she's got a responsibility to her team. But nobody would have said the same thing. Nobody would have said it if on that first trick she fell and broke her arm. Nobody would have thought that she should just push through. And this is what we have to realize is that depression is the same thing. It is, it is a part of our body that is not operating at its full capacity. Just like if you were to break your arm, you were not able to do things with that arm. Depression is that way for our mind and for our being. And, and, and it, it just, it was sickening to listen to some of the pe way people. Now, the good news is that a lot of people had the opposite. And they supported her and said, hey, you know, we, we're, we're behind you. And it was good to see but sometimes that, that small minority of people are so loud. And it's a stigma that is still attached. And we need to rip that stigma apart. Because this is the truth, is your illness is not your identity. The things, the things that are keeping you from operating at 100% are not who you are. Depression does not define you, does not define me, does not define Simone Biles. So what does the Bible have to say about this? The truth is, is that God is a God who wants you and I to experience freedom. So what it says in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. You see... I would sit there and think, I'm, I'm a pastor. I shouldn't feel this way. I should be happy. I have an amazing life. Why do I feel like this? But when I read the Bible, I actually see many people in the Bible who have probably stronger faiths than I struggle with depression. Take, for example, Jeremiah, who is affectionately known as the weeping prophet. He writes an entire book that somehow makes it into the Bible, and it's called Lamentations. And it's not a super encouraging read. This is what it says. I have been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wondering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well and my soul is downcast within me. Is there a better way maybe to describe what depression feels like? My soul is downcast within me. He skipped to the New Testament and the Apostle Paul who writes 13 letters that make it into our New Testament. 
He says this in 2 Corinthians, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we are experiencing in the province of Asia. We are under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. We despaired of life itself. John Wesley, great theologian, uh, preacher, pastor, uh, planted thousands of churches through his Methodist movement. Um, Someone that we draw a lot of our theological heritage from. We would trace our theological heritage back to John Wesley. In his journals and letters, we read that he struggled heavily with thoughts of anxiety and depression. A lot of which he actually brings on himself. Um, John and his brother Charles set out on a missionary journey. Actually, they come here to America a long time ago. They land at Fort Frederica in St. Simons Island, Georgia, and with the express purpose of preaching the gospel to the Native Americans. Now, they didn't call them that at the time, but that's what they were. And he makes a lot of mistakes. He makes a lot of people mad. Um, He really had no business doing some of the things he was doing. And and so John, who is this incredible figure in church history, has to sneak back onto a boat for fear of his life after spending a little more than a year in Georgia. And we read journals from his time just on that passage from the, on the boat where the storms are, it's like, you know, what was happening inside of him was also happening outside. The storms were just rocking the boat. And he, he questions whether or not he actually was a Christian. He, he writes that he's, I, I, I fear, I fear that I don't even know God, that I have no place in his kingdom. And thankfully, when he gets off the boat, he ends up, um, he ends up finding a, a group of people and he's able to, he's able to kind of rekindle that faith and, and see some of the things that had happened. Um, and because of it, we now have a lot of <laughs> the rest of church history has, has gone well because of someone like John Wesley. But even John Wesley, who was so influential, his contemporaries talk about him as if he were the greatest of all time, struggles with this. And we look back at the Old Testament, and where we're going to kind of spend most of our time this week and next week is with the story of Elijah. And if you don't know the story of Elijah, he is one of the most uh, profound, one of the most influential people of the Old Testament, so much so that he actually shows up in the New Testament But the Bible says that he was a man just like us, which is crazy to think about because he performed miracles. He, um, I mean, his life was like a superhero, like a Marvel superhero movie. It, It was nuts. But the Bible says he was a man just like you and I. He was a prophet to the nation of Israel. And during his time, there were some evil, evil kings and one really evil queen Elijah ends up being one of the people who um, is seen with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in, in the Gospels where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to a mountain and all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up. I mean, these are things that they're just out of this world. Elijah was thought so high of by the Jewish community, the people of Israel, that they leave a place setting, they left a place setting for Elijah at the Passover just in case he showed up to their house. Elijah challenges the false prophets of a God named Baal to a duel. And so he says, you know what, come to Mount Carmel, let's have a duel. And so 450 prophets of Baal come and they say, you know, Elijah says, listen, build an altar, make a sacrifice. If Baal rains down fire and consumes that sacrifice, then we will follow Baal. But if he doesn't and God does, then you will follow God. And so it's this showdown on Mount Carmel where uh, these guys, they, they make up their altar, they go first and they're, they're, crying out to their God and they're cutting themselves and they're shouting and they are just 
getting after it, trying to get Baal to answer. And they're doing this for hours and hours and hours. And finally, Elijah just starts to like make fun of them. Like, you guys are serious. Like, maybe he's sleeping. Maybe he's not, maybe he can't hear you. Maybe you should shout louder. And then there's a moment where he says, okay, that's enough. You had your chance. And, and Elijah just almost just showing off. Has, has a bull brought, built an altar, and then he says, you know what, let's make this even more fun, and he has, has people douse it with water to the point where they had to dig a trench around it, and the trench fills up with water, and then he prays to God, and God just consumes the sacrifice in an instant, and it laps up all the water that was around and it was at that day where they realized that God was who he said he was. And then Elijah, by himself, <laughs> puts for all the prophets of Baal to the sword. This man has just had an incredible spiritual victory. And before this, he had prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain for three years. Then he's praying that it will rain, and it rains. He is literally on the top of a mountain and figuratively on the top of a mountain. Ahab is the king of Israel at the time, and he was not very happy with what had happened. And he goes and he tells his wife Jezebel, and this is what it says in 1 Kings 19, 1 through 4. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Elijah was afraid. He ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left a servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush. He sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Jezebel didn't even actually threaten his life. Like, she could have just sent somebody to kill him. She just sent a threat of it. She just posted on his Facebook. She just sent him a text message, like a modern day equivalent. And, and he is so afraid that he runs one threat and he turns and runs and he runs right into a cave. So how do we end up in a cave? Scientists, psychologists believe that there are nine causing factors of depression. Only two of those are biological. Only two are things that we can't really control. So you have nine, and seven of them are things that you and I can control. There's hope. That's hope. That you and I have the ability to make different decisions in life to help, to help focus better and what's more is in this passage, we see six of those seven causes of depression in Elijah's life. What we find is that most of the reasons that we are prone to depression is because of our lifestyle. We're doing it to ourselves. Uh, it's said that depression is a disease of lifestyle. And so, yes, if you are prescribed medication, you should take it. But medicine alone will not fix or cure depression because the core of the problems of depression is lifestyle. The only way to cure a disease of lifestyle is to change our lifestyle. So the first cause that we see in Elijah's story is, is life imbalances. And we could spend an entire, an entire series on what it looks like to live a life with good rhythm. But the truth is, is that you and I live in a culture that tells us we must, we, we have to be out of balance to, to, to get forward. That we can't, we can't live a life that has good rhythm in it. This is what Johan Hari says in his book, Lost Connection. We need to talk less about chemical imbalances and more about the imbalances in the way that we live. Elijah's depression comes after enormous victories. And what it reminds us is that you and I are not at our best when we are tired, when we are worn out. Elijah may have been riding high on spiritual emotions and, and he was there, but he was weak at that moment because he was tired. Do you know that m m more pastors quit on Mondays than any other day of the week? 
In fact, like, they tell you, like, don't quit on Monday. Like, wait. Wait one more day. It gets better. Don't quit on Monday. Because, because most pastors, they, they spend every ounce of energy they have on Sunday. And by Sunday night, the attacks are real. The war within themselves starts. Research points that our lifestyles are the leading cause of depression. And it's a legacy that you and I are leaving behind for kids. And here's me on my soapbox for a second. We live life at such a frantic pace that we are, we are teaching teenagers and children that that's how you get ahead in life. Is that you, it, 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 is, it is a very American way of thinking that you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, that you put your head down and you just keep going forward. And it may not seem like it because a lot of us don't think so but I'm telling you that teenagers have never been busier or more stressed out or more lonely or more anxious than they are today. And the expectations that we have on them, we say, well, you know, just, just it's not that big of a deal. You don't have, yeah, you don't have, what else do you have to do? The truth is, is that teenagers have, have school for eight hours a day. And the average, did you know the average amount of homework a high schooler in America has is four hours a night? Four hours. And that's, that's, like, those are the good students that are like doing four hours of homework and the ones who don't do it are falling behind. But four hours, that's a lot of homework. And then volleyball practice and softball and football and all the extra things which are good, they should be doing. But then some of them have to have jobs and we are teaching them to never, to never take a break, to never rest. And we're doing it because that's how we live our lives. There are, there are, there's, a, there's months that go by where I don't remember if I had an actual day off. Where I had a day where I wasn't working, like actually working, but like I'm taking phone calls and I'm, I'm making sure things are going to happen. And so this is me preaching to myself because I have a tendency to work every day all the time. And it's a legacy we're leaving behind. This is what Stephen already says in the depression cure. This is something I think that this is the quote that really, that really did it for me. We were never designed for this sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzy paced of modern life. This is not how we were created. When I read that quote, it was like a checklist of what was wrong in my life. Sedentary, sitting inside at a desk for work, socially isolated, hello 2020, fast food laden, I'm too busy to make, to make dinner, so we're just going to grab McDonald's again, sleep deprived, we've got a baby, frenzied pace of modern life. I finally realized that I had been doing a lot of this to myself. I had been doing a lot of this to myself. I'm always tired. I'm always inside. I'm not okay. So what do we do? You take a day off. You take a break. You go outside. You go and you breathe the salty air at the beach. And you reset your mind. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 says this, better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. What's that mean? Is that yes, yes, you, you should work hard. God blesses hard work, like you, are, you should work hard. But sometimes this much is enough and going this far is more than is necessary and will do more damage. You may gain more money, but you will do damage to your soul because you will not have what it takes within you. It's very countercultural. It's not the American way. But peace and margin and rest, those are things found within the pages of Scripture telling you to rely on God 
more than rely on yourself. And in our country, it's very often that what we tell, we tell kids that they could just, just believe in themselves. Oh, we need to trust in God. The second thing is this, is that we compare ourselves with others. Elijah just like throws that in at the end. I'm no better than my ancestors. <laughs> when we compare ourselves to others, we invite anxiety and stress and depression into our lives. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt is famous for saying that comparison is the thief of joy. And we live in a society where it is so easy to get lost in this comparison trap. Because at our fingertips are devices that are designed for you to compare yourselves to others. For me to compare myself to someone else. And, and we can, I can compare myself to the wealthiest, the most beautiful, the most athletic people in the world. Like nothing. And research has shown that it is changing. Social media is changing how our brains form. Studies are showing that teenagers' brains are literally forming differently than they did 25 years ago. We've also heard and learned now that those who have helped create these social networks regret it because of what it's doing to us. You see, we're comparing our miserable lives to other people's highlight reels. And it's not biblical. Galatians says this, each one should test their own actions. They can take pride, a healthy pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. We have to stop comparing ourselves. You and I were designed for different things. God has a plan for you that's different than his plan for me. We are all part of it. We've got to start, stop comparing ourselves. The third thing that Elijah does is ruminating and self-talk. Have you ever, when you drive by, you drive by a field of cows, what do you see cows doing? You see them chewing, chewing their cud. Always chewing, always chewing. See, a, a cow has a really hard time breaking down the fibers and the grasses and the weeds that they eat. And so what they do is they, they will chew it up, they will swallow it, and they will regurgitate it back into their mouth, and they will chew it some more, then they will swallow it, then they will regurgitate it, then they will chew it some more. And I can promise you, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just willing to bet, okay, I'm willing to bet, I don't know for a fact, but I'm willing to bet it never tastes better the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time. It's what we do, though, when we go home after a day of work that just didn't go our way, and we sit down, and all we do is think about everything that went wrong. And we bring it back up, and every time it gets worse. It never gets better. It gets worse. You ever sit there, and you think of, randomly, you think of something you did that was dumb, like, three years ago? And then you sit there, and you think about it all night long. I promise you, no one else remembers. But this is what we do. We sit and we think and we think and we ruminate on and we talk to ourselves. We talk down to ourselves like, oh, you are so dumb. Why did you do that? That self-talk, it focuses attention on the symptoms of one's distress as opposed to the solutions it's when we obsess about the wrong things instead of what we could do tomorrow to make it better. And this is, what the en this is when the enemy loves to show up. He loves to just start pointing things out to us. Brian Tracy says that 95% of your emotions are determined by the way that you talk to yourself. This is not a, uh, this is not a, uh, I don't know, like, this sermon is not like a just like be nice and smile to yourself. This is like, this is real stuff. The way that you think and talk to yourself determines how you are going to feel about yourself. And the Bible's not silent on it either. Philippians says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. You control your mind. You will control the emotions of your life. And so what's the cure for this piece? Is that you cannot do this by yourself. 
You need somebody to work through this with you. And so there might be things that you need to talk about that you didn't do right today, but you need somebody to process that with you. Because I promise they're going to say, hey, it's not as bad as you think. And they're going to help you work towards solutions rather than beating yourself up about it. Because you and I, we are our own worst critics. Number four, the inability to process pain in a healthy way. Everybody, everybody, everybody medicates somehow. Everybody feels pain and we all do something to numb that pain. But many of us, including myself, medicate in unhealthy ways. According to the Washington Post, during 2020, overdoses jumped nationally in March by 18%, and in April by 29%, and in May by 42%. For some, we numbed that pain with excessive eating or alcohol or drugs. Maybe you say, well, I didn't do anything that bad. Maybe you numbed the pain by shutting everybody out and binge watching Netflix until three in the morning. Or you would, you would look up at the clock and realize it's three o'clock in the morning and you turned your, your Xbox on seven hours ago. The inability to process pain in a healthy way. These things, food, video games, not inherently evil. But when we cannot process our pain and we turn to these things to numb us, we open ourselves up to depression. Victor Frank was a psychologist, and he worked with Holocaust survivors. Um, he, he wrote a book, Man Searching for Meeting. You see, Freud, uh, also a famous psychiatrist, um, he believed that the chief end of life was pleasure. All right? So if you read anything about Floyd, he is all, Freud, he's all about pleasure. Uh, Victor Frank says, no, he's, he's not right. Freud's wrong. He said the chief end of life is meaning and purpose. And if you don't find meaning or purpose, you will medicate with pleasure. You will numb yourself with pleasure if you don't find meaning or purpose. You see, he, he, he works with Holocaust survivors, and all of these men and women are incredibly suicidal, as you could imagine. He works with people who were in concentration camps, and he gives them a treatment of three things, these three things that he does. The first one is he gave them work that meant something, a meaningful work, something that gave them a purpose, something to look forward to. Second, he gave them a group of friends who, would, who, he would, who he would, they would be with, they would support each other, they would, be, they would be a team. And the third is that he required them to find something good in the pain that they had experienced. Not one of his patients ever committed suicide. We need meaning in life, purpose in life. We need good friends. We need the ability to find the good. This is what Second Corinthians says, Praise be to the, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we receive ourselves from God. This is hard, guys. But there's purpose. There's purpose in your pain. God doesn't relish in it. He doesn't cause it. He doesn't, he doesn't get excited that you're going through something that hurts but God is a God who can comfort you and can make a way for you to then be his hands and feet and comfort others. And it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it fun to go through these things, but there is a purpose. And so if you will find meaning, if you will find a purpose, you will be able to stay away from this cause because what you're going through can be a catalyst to help others become closer to God. Number five is isolation and loneliness. One of the worst things that Elijah does is he leaves his servant in Beersheba. He leaves his servant and he goes alone into the desert. I, I'm really bad at this, guys. Um, I am, so in, in an argument, I am the one that flees. 
all right? I'm the one that just walks away because I don't, I don't want to deal with it. I, I, I like to just get in my car and drive or I'll go to the other room and, and, and Bethany is the opposite. She's like, no, 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 we're going to do this. We're going to have it out. Let's, let's fix this. And I, I, don't, I don't want to. I think that I, I, I fool myself because I'm, I'm introverted in nature. I fool myself into thinking that's what I need. I need to be alone. That's not true. Like, yes, I'm introverted and that's okay. And I, and I, I recharge differently. But it, that's a lie that I just need to be alone with my thoughts because it's the worst possible place that I could be. And this is what I had been doing over the last year because the last year wasn't easy. It was hard. Like I had, I had real stuff happen and you had real stuff happen. And I would think, oh, I just need to get away by myself. And it was really, really not good for me. A lot of it probably has to do with my ego. A lot of it probably has to do with I'm a guy. I don't know what to admit I'm wrong. But instead of just talking about it, instead of saying something, I would, I would shut down and I would just mindlessly scroll through social media for hours. I would, I would Bethany would go to bed and I would just stay up until 3 a.m. and find myself watching. Like, you know what the first problem in the world was? The first problem in the world had nothing to do with sin. That wasn't the first problem. Genesis 2.18 says, The Lord God said it's not good for man to be alone. The first problem in our world was loneliness, not sin. Feelings of isolation and loneliness, they affect more than one-third of all adults and more than half of all young people are lonely. And this is crazy. You and I live in a generation and in a time where we are supposed to be more connected than ever. Yet we struggle with loneliness more than any other generation before. These numbers for those who struggle with loneliness have never hit, hit this, this high before. Over the last year, it's been amplified. Virtual school, virtual church, virtual work, no connections no wonder depression has skyrocketed. You see, we need each other. We need each other. Romans 12 says this, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body. We belong to each other. We need each other. Do not isolate yourself. Find people. How? Well, we're gonna encourage you to get in a connect group. We want you to be whole and to do life with other people who love you and who will go to battle with you. Join a ministry team. Tons of teams that you can join and you can find purpose. You can find, you can find people. The last one is this. And this is one you won't find in many books, except for maybe this one, Right? But that last cause is spiritual warfare. Here's the truth. God has an enemy. And because God loves you so much, and he loves me so much, that enemy also is not very fond of you. And he will do anything possible to break that relationship of you and God. 1 Peter 5, 8, and 9 to stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Too often we, we forget. We forget that there's a real battle happening that we can't see. A real thing, a, a real war for you and for me. We forget because we think we get lulled into the sense that what we are experiencing here is the real thing. One of my favorite books, and I didn't bring it up, and I didn't even write this, but one of my favorite books by G.K. Chesterton. It's a, it's a mystery. It's like a Sherlock Holmes book. It's, it's called The Man Who Was Thursday. And towards the end of the book, the, um, the detective is chasing after this man called Thursday. And he turns around and he says, listen, you don't understand what you're doing. He says, you've never seen a chair before. You've merely seen the back of it. You've never seen a tree before. You've simply seen the back, just a shadow of that tree. 
if only you could come around front and see what was really happening. And this is what's happening, this is what's happening all around us, is we have no idea. C.S. Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. The battle that is waged in the spiritual realm is very real. But you are not left without defense. Ephesians 6.11 says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. You've been given this defense, but you must put it on. You see, God has given us authority. We have to use it. And so maybe today you've come in and you're feeling this way. You're feeling... Something's just off, but you haven't been able to nail it down. I hope that today has helped to show you that there's hope. And maybe you've been able to see like, oh man, these parts of my life, they're out of whack. And I got to fix that. I want to pray for you. And next week, I want you to come back and you want you to tune in. And we're going to look at the other half of Elijah's story where he comes out of the cave. And God invites him out of the cave and God doesn't chastise him. In fact, God sends, sends resources to him to take care of him because God loves you. And that's what he wants to do for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you today and we lift up your people. Those of us who have, who have found ourselves in a cave of depression, we pray that you would help to pull us out of that. That you would you would show us the areas in our lives, the behaviors our lifestyle has, has, has brought upon us, that you would help us see that, but that we wouldn't just see it, we would make a change. Would you send us people who would hold us accountable, who will help go, go in between for us that would be with us? We pray that you would work amazing victories, that you would bring freedom in this place. You are a God who sets us free. We pray these things in your name. Amen.